It was through the yes of the Virgin Mary and the overshadowing of the Holy Spirit that Jesus first came into the world. So too is it by the yes of Mary and the Holy Spirit that Christ will be made anew in our world. Hello, everyone. This is Mike Gomer-Gormley coming at you from Every Knee Shall Bow, your weekly Catholic podcast on evangelization. Today's show is going to be a talk that I gave last year at the Fullness of Truth Conference on Mary, Behold Your Mother. Now, there was a whole bunch of rock stars <laughs> that were invited to give this, uh, this weekend-long conference on Mary from an apologetic standpoint. And my talk was on Mary and the spiritual warfare. Typically, someone like Dave Van Vickle would give this talk. And in fact, Dave sort of did give this talk because in my preparation for this, while driving out to the actual event from Houston to San Antonio, I listened to Dave's uh, 10 Principles of Spiritual Warfare in Every Knee Shall Bow, one of our earlier archived episodes. And I consumed it. It was beautiful and wonderful and magical. And it helped me in formulating my thoughts for this. So there's three things I want you to pay attention to when you listen to this talk. Number one is how I weave the kerygma into a talk on Mary. You know that I believe that the kerygma should be the center of all of our teachings, or at the very least, how all of our catechesis relates to the cross. You know, whether or not you explicitly put it in the middle of all of our catechesis, it needs to be. Uh, the center and everyone listening needs to see how from the cross and resurrection of Jesus comes our doctrine on grace and salvation and the blessed Virgin Mary and all that stuff. Number two, I want you to see how I emphasize personal prayer and devotion, because I know that especially for me, I've been going to fullness of truth conferences for years. I love apologetics. However, one of the things that I realize is you can be very smart without being holy. And so that dovetails into number three, brothers and sisters, Pope Emeritus Benedict said it best, the true revolutionaries are the saints. The true revolutionaries are the saints. And so what good does it uh, profit us if we get all this knowledge but have not love? We're clanging gongs and noisy cymbals, and we'll go to hell for all eternity with all of our you know, proof texting and all that stuff. I want you to be praying people. And so when you listen to this presentation, um, again, Fullness of Truth, a uh, buddy of mine, Todd Johnson, who's a big fan of this show, as well as Catching Foxes, me and him have become good friends because I love all the stuff that they are doing out there. Um, he gave me permission to play this show. So check out Fullness of Truth, a wonderful organization. You know, it's it's got to be so hard for an organization that puts on amazing conferences in this time of COVID. So um, finally, let's pray for one another. Let's um, Ascension has some amazing people doing the daily rosary. We got Father Mike Schmitz's masses and all this stuff. Head on over to YouTube to Ascension Presents. There's a lot of great stuff that's going on there. I hope you all are staying healthy uh, in this time of social distancing. Please do not be isolated. Please do not be isolated. God bless y'all. And here is the talk. Jesus, you know us. You know every hair on our head. You know us better than we know ourselves. And yet, you still love us. So marked by the sign of your love, this wondrous cross, upon which hung the Savior of the world, Jesus, my Lord, my King, my everything. Send forth your Spirit now, that we might walk in your wisdom all the days of our life. And that clinging to the Blessed Virgin Mary, your mother, we might be rid of the temptations of the devil and embrace wholly your resurrected glory. Jesus, in your matchless name, we pray. Amen. Our Lady, Queen of Victory. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Uh, okay. <clears throat> okay. So we are here, and we are going to dive into Mary, Mother queen warrior. When we talk about Mary as the Ark of the Covenant, right, the Ark of the Covenant was carried into battle in, uh, in all Near Eastern societies. They had something like an Ark, right, something similar to what the Israelites had, and often it would go forth in battle. I mean, just think of when God wanted the Israelites to conquer Jericho, one of the strongest cities in the ancient world. 
What did he have them do? He had them pray. March and pray, march and pray, and let the Ark of the Covenant go before you. And on the seventh day, those walls came tumbling down. Brothers and sisters, right now we are looking at a culture and a church today where the, it seems as if the walls of the heavenly Jerusalem have come tumbling down. We look around and we see scandal and violence and abuse. We see money mischief and all of this stuff going on. And we wonder, where, oh Lord, are you? Where is your presence? Where is your power? Save us from ourselves. What do we do when we look around and we see the walls of the heavenly Jerusalem in ruins and we are harassed roundabout by our enemies and they come and seem to just pick us off every day. Seven, six young adults leave for everyone who, who comes into the church. And we get so sad. And we remember the old days when the church was strong and united, somewhat fictionalized vision of the past. But we still remember those days and we long, what will the future look? What will it look like? And how can we get there to bring the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ back to our homes, our neighborhoods, our parishes, our diocese, our country, the world? What does it look like, brothers and sisters? It looks like a battlefield. See, this is one of the things that we have to realize as Catholic Christians. When we were birthed into this world, we were birthed in the midst of a war. Light and darkness, God and his angels and his saints, the kingdom of God railing against the dominion of darkness. One of the things that always shocked me was when I read the temptation narrative, right? And the, the devil is tempting Christ after his 40 days in the desert. You gotta love Matthew's gospel. 40 days in the desert, he had not eaten anything and he was hungry. Understatement of the century, I fast for 24 hours and I eat everything in the refrigerator. Of course, that might have to do with my own personal wounds, moving on. Um, but one of the things that we need to realize is that we were born into a world at war. That we were baptized in not just into a kingdom, but we were made to be soldiers. That's why the old rite of confirmation, the bishop would slap you repeatedly in the face. That might be an exaggeration. But that's where that comes from, the knighting ceremony, right? It was symbolic that you and I might want to play the knight and be the hero. We just don't really want to bleed like one. We want to be Catholic. We want to have the crowds. We want to have the popularity. We want to be Christendom again. We just don't want to suffer like the saints and prophets of old. But brothers and sisters, Jeremiah went down the same path that you and I will have to go to. Hopefully there are no cisterns full of mud that we'll get dropped into, but you never know. I got stuck in some wicked mud the other day, but that was just my car. Um, so we have to realize that we are in a world at war and that there is an adversary, right? I think sometimes, I, now maybe not the people in this room, maybe your friends back home or at that other parish, but sometimes I don't think we operate as if the devil was real. And we don't acknowledge the reality that there actually is a supernatural force that desires to rob us of our inheritance in Christ Jesus. Now, the tendency is twofold. Either we ignore him, which is mostly the sin of us fancy modern people, or on the other side, the sin of the superstitious is we see the devil around every corner and in every bush. Ha, there's a devil, right? My car won't start. Clearly the devil. Or put gasoline, whatever. Now, a little from column A, a little from column B. It was the devil that made you forget to put the gasoline. There it is. So what we realize is we are born into a battlefield. We are on a battle. Imagine an army going to war. And they woke up one day and they forgot they were on the battlefield. That army cannot be effective. And yet time and time again through scripture and the tradition of the church, there is this notion of the spiritual combat, that we are Catholics at war. But we're not at war with people. We are at war with ideas. We are at war with ideologies, idolatries. We are at war with the principalities and powers, the thrones, the world rulers of this present darkness. But see, here's the beautiful thing. We believe in a God who already attained the victory. And so what I want to do is walk you through some basic spiritual principles of warfare, of the, of the true warfare that we are undergoing today, I want to hopefully dispel some myths, but I want to energize you 
for some, uh, for, with some sacred truth. And then I want to show you how Mary is at the center of the divine drama, right? Now, I want to make a couple notes. How many of y'all have visited the bookstore back there, right? Okay. Now, let me tell you something. They're paying me to come out here and speak. I'm not cheap, folks. And I have almost blown through my entire paycheck on those books back there. They're doing a raffle for something before Immaculate Sock, and I'm like, I need this and this, so watch out. But there are, there are there's a couple books that I'm going to recommend. One of them is by Dom Scupoli. It is called The Spiritual Combat. Another one is Brother Jonathan of the Oratory, and he did The Spiritual Combat Revisited. They're both back there. One's from Sophia Press, I believe. The other one's from Ignatius. Um, they're powerful, powerful writings from a 15th century um, Abbott, and then a new version, not new version of it, but commentary of it by a modern, um, a modern theologian and apostle. So I would encourage you to look at books that deal with our spiritual warfare because, and I'm going to get in more into this a little bit later, I have met tons of Catholics who love learning about their faith, but who do not have a prayer life. And I want to issue this word of caution, okay, for those of you. So we did this Scott Hahn event at my parish, we filled the seats for the talks on the Eucharist. And then when it came time for Mass and no one was there, and the priest who's a buddy of mine was like, wow, they come to hear talks on the Eucharist, but they won't stay to receive them. Like, I had no idea Jesus was truly present. Oh, well, see you later. Right? So here's the deal. We can learn a lot, but if we don't have a prayer life, what good is that knowledge to us? It profits us nothing. In fact, there's only one category of person who is not found in hell, and it's not smart people. See, I fear that when we educate people without forming them in a prayer life, what we are doing, before we give them the practices of how to live the Christian life, we fill their minds with Christian data. So often what can happen is we just become smart people instead of holy disciples following the master. So my advice to you is don't just look at Get the books that you need with the questions that you have to have answered, right? I have tons of apologetics books. I love them. But brothers and sisters, if we are reading apologetics but we aren't praying, we are failing. And the good news is the fine people at the Fullness of Truth know this. There are tons of books on Catholic prayers but on Catholic spiritual life. I recommend you start with those. Because what does a prophet a man or a woman, if you gain the whole world, but you lose your soul. So I want to start, the first spiritual principle is to realize that we are, in fact, in the middle of combat. This is a war. A war is raging. The war is for you and for your children, right? It's for your friends and for your family. Many of you uh, older people in the room know the intense sorrow of losing your adult children away from the faith. In fact, some of you are in this room because of that very reality. Maybe you came to faith a lot later on, you had a reversion, a conversion, a something version, and now you're looking around and you're like, if only I knew this stuff when I was younger, I would have taught my kids better, and maybe, just maybe. But I want to let you know something beautiful. There is still hope as long as God is sovereign and all-powerful. Amen? All right. Saint, yes, St. Thomas Aquinas says that if we believe in the mercy of God and in the omnipotence of God, then we cannot give up on hope for the salvation of anyone. Okay? So it doesn't mean that God will save every single soul and there's no one going to be in hell, right? But it does mean, in fact, that we can hope against hope. The grace of Jesus Christ can move in his or her heart in ways that maybe we'll never know about. So let's pray for all of those people that are struggling with that because I'm seeing some head bobbing up and down. So if you don't have an adult child who has left the faith or a, or a high school student, someone who's left the faith, let's just intercede for the person maybe sitting next to you in your row. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Thank you. Now, there are three sources of temptation. What are they? Yeah, someone just yelled it. That's it. The world, the flesh, and the devil, the world, the flesh, and the devil. These are the three sources that rob us of our salvation. And how do they rob us of our salvation? Well, when we say the world, we don't mean the galaxy. We don't mean the universe. We don't mean the Marvel Cinematic Universe, because that is nothing but a blessing. How dare you? We mean 
What we mean by that is we mean that world system that is arranged in such a way that it needs no God for it to function. A world system that views humanity as nothing more than whirling atoms, mechanisms to be manipulated, that has no place for God or his judgment or his salvation, right? That's what we mean by the world. You could use the world as the world as the physical universe. You could use the world as describing nature. You could use the world as descriptive of where the drama of salvation takes place. But those are the four senses of the way scripture uses the word the world, the fourth being that place that rejects God's sovereignty over it, that seeks to elevate politics as religion. And that's what we're witnessing today. Why is our culture so divisive today? It's because when you get rid of metaphysics, all you got left is politics. When you get rid of God, you still have the religious impulse. You just apply it to all the wrong things. You have the shallow people applying it to celebrities, right? You have the slightly deeper people applying it to cash money. But then you have the vast hordes of humanity applying it to politics. And so the reason why we're divisive is we're fighting religious wars against one another on the left and on the right. See, when you remove God from the equation, when you remove, excuse me, the worship of God from the equation, all we have left is politics. And I don't know about you, but that terrifies me. And so we move on. The world, the flesh, and the devil. What is the flesh? The flesh is not just my body as if my body is evil. All of you looking at my body right now says, that's pretty good, right? I understand that. I understand that. I know I'm eye candy. That's why there's DVDs, right? People don't just want a CD of my voice. They want to see it, right? But the flesh in Scripture is specifically our fallen human nature and how it gravitates towards sin. Now, let me tell you how that manifests structurally in our culture today. Somewhere in probably the 1950s, 60s, 70s in America, we replaced the word happiness with the word comfort. I don't know how we did it. I don't know when we did it. I wish I could find the guy and beat him up. But we replaced the word spiritually, beat him up spiritually, spiritual warfare. But we replaced the word happiness with the word comfort. So we define being happy as being the most comfortable I can be. But that's not true. Anyone who's ever done anything worth doing knows there are moments of profound discomfort and frustration before you do anything meaningful or impactful. For instance, Woodworking. How many of y'all do woodworking or can handle your, maybe handle a table saw? We got, it's me, you, and that guy. Okay, awesome. Afterwards, we're going to talk. Do you use a DeWalt table saw? That's all I got. That's all I got. <laughs> but the idea is, I, my wife is like, I love you after you've spent three hours in the garage doing woodworking. Because I work at a desk. Right? I like to tell everyone I'm such an evangelist, but most of my day I'm emailing. Right? Isn't that like most of our lives, right? So I get out and I do something physical. And my, the stuff that I built is not straight, level, or at any sort of right angles where they're supposed to be. It's a disaster. I don't understand how people do it. I watch YouTube videos, and the guy lines it up, makes a right angle, kind of gives it a little bang with his palm. And I do it, and I'm like, well, not even close to 90 degrees, right? The idea is something worth doing is worth being uncomfortable and frustrated at until you get it right. I guess, I haven't made anything worth making, but one day, I know. Now, the whole idea of true human happiness, finding fulfillment in Christ Jesus is about carrying the cross, but when our culture defines happiness as comfort, the cross is heresy. The cross is heresy to a culture like that. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Now, I don't want you to be the people on the far side of the spectrum where you see the devil behind every bush. It's not true. That's not how he works. The devil prefers to work not with sensationalism, but in subtlety. Okay? And I'm going to get more to that as we go on. Spiritual principle number two. How does the devil work in this world? His ordinary way of working in the world is not possession. Right? That's not the normal way. It's not like he possesses everyone. It's not like he obsesses or you know, infests everyone's closet when they're eight years old and they're like, why is that light on in the closet? I used to be so terrified of what was in my closet. Turns out, clothes that I should have hung up. But other than that, nothing. Right? 
But the ordinary form, how does the devil operate in the world? The ordinary form of the devil's operation in the world is temptation. The subtlety of temptation. Why? Because even if you're possessed in the absolute rarity that that is, you're probably not in danger of hell. Your sin endangers your soul, right? It's my sin. Dr. Scott Hahn used to say in class to us when I, when I took him as an undergrad, um, I was friends with the son. It's fine. Don't worry about it. Um, we text each other. It's cool. Uh, Dr. Hahn used to say, the moment other people's sin enrages me more than my own is the day I need a reality check. Because their sins don't send me to hell. And when we begin to see how the devil begins to work, we realize that the way he tempts me is not going to be the same way that he tempts you, is it? Because of my family history, my baggage, my genetic code, my temperament God gave me, my this, my that, my other thing, right? We're all tempted in our own unique ways. So what works for you might not work for me. What works on me might not work on you. But in our arrogance, speaking of the flesh, we look at other people's sin and we judge it more harshly because we say, how could you have fallen into that? I would never do that. Oh, another couple on the street just broke up because of an adultery. How could they have an affair? I would never in a million years do that. And then we fall into the most demonic of all sins, pride, right? This is how the subtle craft of the devil, if we are not careful and watchful, ruins us. Sexual sins that get so much attention are flea bites compared to the deeper spiritual sins of pride, conceit, and self-justification. But that's the ordinary, I almost said the ordinary form, like I'm talking about the mass. That's the ordinary way that the devil works in the world is through temptation. Subtlety, not sensationalism. The more attention the devil draws to himself, the less effective he is able to work in the world. The more possessions happen, the more movies get made about it. And even though the movies are 90% inaccurate, it scares people to even think that this stuff could be real. Much like the gargoyles and demonic images on the outside of, of, of European cathedrals eating bad bishops, right? Like a, a Notre Dame, right? All these little devils, they're eating the bad bishops and stuff that have been in that area. Now, why is that important? It's meant to evoke a, a, a horror for real sin that real people really committed so that I don't commit that sin. But the devil doesn't want your horror at sin. The devil wants your arrogance towards other people's sin because then you plunge ever, ever deeper into your own because at least you're not like them. See the subtlety of his craft. So how do we oppose the subtlety of temptation? How do we do this? What is the ordinary way the church attacks the work of the devil in the world. The ordinary way the church attacks the devil at work in the world is not through exorcism, it's through evangelism. Evangelization is how we destroy the kingdom of darkness. Evangelization, right? Pope Paul VI, Saint Pope Paul VI and Evangelii Nuziandi on evangelization in our time. What he said was the church, she exists in order to evangelize. And so I go around all these parishes and I ask them, how many of you were evangelized by your parish? And like two people will raise their hand and I look at them and I go, RCIA? And they go, yeah. But how many of us can honestly say that someone preached to us the gospel in the context of the ordinary parish life? Like that Jesus Christ died for me, that I need to repent of my sin and accept him fully, totally, absolutely. I need to transform my life and embrace him through baptism and faith. So many people were just like, well, we just kind of assumed that already happened, and we just catechize or sacramentalize it. But the ordinary way that we conquer the kingdom of darkness, brothers and sisters, is through evangelization, okay? That's the ordinary way. We are going to take a brief break to hear a message from our sponsor, which is always Ascension Press. If you could do us a quick favor and give us a five-star review if you think our show is worth it. Go on whatever service you use and write a brief review. This helps others find our show. Thank you all so much. 
every one of us is made in the image of God. We are unique, worthy of love, and called to greatness. In this world, though, we can be distracted from that truth and begin to doubt God's love is real. You see, we live in a world that tells us we are not smart, attractive, thin, or rich enough. It is easy to focus on the ways we fall short of worldly perfection and forget that we are already made perfect. We are already enough. I'm Danielle Bean, author of You Are Enough, what women of the Bible teach you about your mission and worth. You Are Enough dives into the stories of women in the Bible so that you can fully see God's plan for your life. To order, visit ascensionpress.com or Amazon. So I looked around and I, I do all these like parish missions and retreats. One day I'm doing a retreat for a parish staff and I gave them uh, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And I said, go take the Sermon on the Mount and go and prayerfully read through it. Don't read through it, pray through it. And I said, I'll give you 35 minutes to do that. Deacon walked up to me and he goes, hey man, can I, can I talk to you real quick? I was like, yeah, 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 what's going on, Mr. Deacon? I can't remember his last name. And uh, he said, um, I, don't, I don't know how to pray. I said, excuse me? Mr. Deacon, he goes, I know how to say the parts of the mass. I know how to pray the rosary. I don't know how to like pray with the scripture. Like, what do you mean by that? He goes, and I'm just gonna chance it and say, I don't think anyone else here knows how to pray either. Now, okay, Bishop Barron, whom I love, says that the number one problem with the church today, I shouldn't say the number one problem, but one of the major problems of the church today and why we're losing young adults is because it's not intellectually robust enough. And I think that's true. I'm a nerd. I got this body by, in fact, sitting in a chair drinking Dr. Pepper and reading from a computer screen all day. That's what happened. Surprise. But I would say that having clergy and having office staffs and having volunteers of people who do not have a prayer life came well before people who do not know how to teach the faith and communicate it. Because how can you give what you don't have? Then you're not communicating the faith, you're just giving data. When I go to Catholic schools, I bring the teachers and, and principal together and I charge them that they better become evangelists because for most Catholic school kids, they're not churning out disciples on fire for Christ, they're churning out kids who know how to get a decent grade and pass in religion class. For them, the Catholic school syndrome is Jesus as Napoleon, that's what I call it. Jesus as Napoleon, what does that mean? Well, Napoleon is an important person in the history of Western civilization that I need to know names, dates, facts, and figures about in order to get a good grade. And that's Jesus to them too. That's Jesus to them. The public school kids, Jesus is more like Santa. That myth my mom and dad used to get me to be nice and not naughty this year, right? Or for all eternity. Because that lump of coal does not go out, right? So it's this notion at the core of what we are trying to build as a church, but when we have people who do not pray, trying to lead liturgy, we have already failed the liturgy. When we have volunteers who know everything but aren't praying, the best we can get, the best we can get is not conversion but agreement. And brothers and sisters, I can tell you, I have been all over the U.S. and Canada right, America's top hat, and I can tell you that agreement is not enough, that it takes the submission of faith to God and his church in order for us to pull out of this crisis. But I'm not wholly convinced God wants us out of this crisis. We're all in crisis management mode now. We get bishops writing books like the letter to the suffering church. Brother, we have been suffering for so long because our shepherds aren't praying and our people don't know how to pray. And the only way we can triumph over the dominion of darkness, which this whole scandal is just a manifestation of. And yeah, there are so many issues that are involved, but I don't care about all of those other issues. I care about the central issue of men and women not being converted to Christ, being leaders in our institutions of Christ. So what do we do? I tell parish staffs all the time, when's the best time to plant an oak tree? 25 years ago. When's the second best time to plant an oak tree? Today, right now. When's the best time to have a prayer life? 
25 years ago? When's the second best time to have a prayer life? Today. And I tell them all, in four weeks, if you do not have a consistent prayer life in both time of day and duration, please quit your job so we can replace you with someone who will. So we can replace you with someone who will. And they're all like, well, that is harsh. It's not harsh. It's not harsh. Jesus Christ desire you guys. If you're praying, if you're clapping right now, you better be prayers. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Nobody don't see them in four weeks. <laughs> you will. Um, in your nightmares. But that's the idea, right? This is how the devil is overcome, is when in my heart I let Christ reign over me. If I don't let Christ reign over me, I have someone else reigning over me. And if that person is me, it's still not good enough. I want the right king to sit on the throne of my heart, and it's not me, and it's certainly not you. I've seen you before. You're not good enough. I need Jesus, and so do you. Amen? All right. Principle number three, or number four, excuse me. Christ was radically victorious over the devil. Have you heard the phrase before? It gets said a lot. We are an Easter people, and alleluia is our song. Have you heard that phrase? Some of y'all nod your heads. Give me, give me a raise of hands if you've ever heard Pope John Paul, that quote from Pope John Paul. Okay, so okay, so obviously many of us don't hang out in the same circles. That is like one of the most go-to phrases I hear all the time. It's like a Hallmark card version of Christianity. JP2 has so many amazing quotes like that. But do you know, I never knew where he said it or who he said it to. He says, we are a Paschal people, and Alleluia is our song. I never knew who he said it to until uh, yesterday. He said it in a letter to the black Americans of Harlem in the 1970s. And when I saw that, I was like, really? I had no clue. We are an Easter people, and Alleluia is our song. Jesus Christ was radically victorious over the devil. Let me read to you from Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Since the children shared in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same nature. Since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same nature, that through death he might destroy him who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong bondage. Jesus Christ was radically victorious over the works of the devil because he allowed what the devil thought was his greatest victory to be the moment of the, the devil's greatest defeat. See, in the first place, there was a garden where Adam and Eve were placed, created in perfect union with one another and with God. And there were two trees placed in the midst of the garden, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil that leads unto death. In the Hebrew language, there is no comparative and superlative. So, for instance, they don't have fast, faster, fastest as comparatives and superlatives. So they repeat the word. So Michael Gormley, he's fast. But when he doesn't have his shoes on, fast, fast, right? So uh, <laughs> that's the idea at the heart of the Hebrew language. It repeats itself, sometimes in beautifully poetic ways, in order to compare and create superlatives. So, for instance... In the temple, every day, sacrifices are offered in this room. It is called the holy place. But there's one room in the temple where sacrifices are only offered once a year on the Feast of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And it's only offered by the high priest. And he's only allowed in there for a few minutes to scatter the blood of purification around. What is that room called? The Holy of Holies, right? So you got the holy place, and very creatively, the Holy of Holies, comparatives, and then when the angel, when Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, sees heaven ripped open, God sitting enthroned in his temple in heaven, of which the earthly temple was only a blueprint thereof, and he sees it, what are the angels singing round about the throne of God? Holy, 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 right? Comparatives and superlatives. So when God told Adam, do not eat the fruit of the knowledge of the tree, uh, the knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or you will die, die. That's what it says in Hebrew. You will die, die. Philo the Jew, a famous Greek philosopher of Jewish um, ethnicity, he translated that into the Greek, you will die the death. 
Most of your Bibles will say something like, you will surely die. But it says, die, die. You will be deader than dead. The deader place, right? And yet when Adam ate the fruit and Eve ate of the fruit, they didn't immediately drop down physically and die. No, brothers and sisters, they spiritually died a deeper death. They lost their covenant. They went into exile. So Jesus Christ, thousands of years later, on the night before he died, after he consecrated the Eucharist and gave that power to his apostles, enters into the garden, the Mount of Olives. And there, with his divine mind, he sees the tree of death looming for him, waiting for him at the Praetorium on Good Friday. And he knew he would have to go to the tree of death and carry it upon his shoulders, stretch forth his hands, and die. Just when we think the devil has his hour, Christ wins the day. And the very fury of hell was unleashed upon the flesh of Christ. Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen says, the reason why he let that is so that evil, after having exhausted itself, might eventually turn to love. And we see it. In the good thief, we see it in the Roman centurion that cries out, this truly was the Son of God. But Scripture goes further. It says that though he despised, now did you know this? Book of Hebrews says he despised the shame of the cross. Did you know that? He despised the shame of the cross, but for the sake of the joy that laid before him, he embraced it. What was the joy that day that Christ saw that would lead him to embrace the shameful tool of demonic oppression? It was you, at fellowship with the Father, purchased by his blood. Since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same nature that through death he might destroy him who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong bondage. Our Lord won the day and purchase for you and me the rewards of eternal life. I can't buy that. I can't earn that. What does it mean to be good enough to be united to God for all eternity? How do I become good enough? The answer, impossible. The Blessed Virgin Mary is not good enough outside of God's divine grace. So God made a way, and that way is called the cross. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, Uh, verse 13, it says, he has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So we are now in the kingdom. The son of man came in Mark 10 to seek and save the lost. He says, the son of man did not come to this world to be served, but rather to serve and to make his life a ransom for many. He became our ransom. His blood was the price he paid. 30 pieces of silver were given in exchange, but the gift was priceless that remains for us. And so this is the beautiful act of redemption that in his body, in his very flesh, he took upon himself all that makes us exiles from our heavenly father, all that removes us from God, all that ruins us for glory, all that is unlovely within us, love itself took it upon himself. And he repristinated our souls by his blood. For by his stripes, you and I are healed. But that wasn't enough. He doesn't just want you, brothers and sisters. The kingdom of God is meant for the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him might not perish but might have eternal Life In Catholic doctrine, we call this the universal salvific will of the Father. For the Father desires that all men should be saved and come to a knowledge of their salvation in Christ Jesus. We desire this. We work for this. We hope for this. We bleed for this. We long for this. And the beautiful thing is at the center of divine drama is the body of Jesus Christ hung fast to a cross, risen from the dead. And Mary and Mary alone, in union with every priest ever since, can look at his body and say, this is my body. This is my blood. 
See, her yes, her fiat, her let it be done unto me according to thy word became the yes of every disciple after that because it made salvation in Christ Jesus possible because it ushered in the incarnation. God is a gentleman. He asks, he proposes, he doesn't impose. And he came to a virgin in a town called Nazareth. And the virgin's name was Mary. And she was betrothed to one named Joseph of the house of David. Therefore, Mary now belongs to David. And the child that came into her womb was now known as the son of David. And this woman said yes. And by her yes, a thousand generations were saved. Her yes was carrying the thousand generations of her people that came before her all the way back to Adam and Eve and their epic failure in the garden when they caused the tree of death to be our birthright. Her yes, her yes. Within her virginal womb, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Frank Duffy, wonderful Irishman, founder of the Army of Mary, is this beautiful line where he says, it was through the yes of the Virgin Mary and the overshadowing of the Holy Spirit that Jesus first came into the world, so too is it by the yes of Mary and the Holy Spirit that Christ will be made anew in our world. So what is the role of Mary in the grand drama of redemption, especially as our warrior queen against the power of the devil? Well, in Revelation 12, we see it unfold, right? She is the one who bears the Christ child, who will rule the nations with a rod of iron. And what is the, the, the tactic? The serpent immediately goes to war with the woman. The serpent immediately attacks the woman. The serpent wants to destroy the woman. And then scripture says at the very end of Revelation chapter 12, verse 17, that the serpent, the dragon, went off to make war against the woman and the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and are marked with the name of Jesus Christ. So brothers and sisters, we are in a war, but we are in a war that has already been won. These are the outlying skirmishes. After World War II, there were Japanese soldiers found for the next 30 years still fighting the war. In fact, one guy was in an island um, outside of Hawaii, or further south, excuse me, of the Philippines, and they had to literally send the Japanese emperor to call him out from the woods and to force him to lay down his arms because the guy was still fighting. And he thought the, the statements that the war was over was pure propaganda. So he would run out and shoot a bunch of farmers and then run away back into the woods. And he lived that way for 30 years. Brothers and sisters, you and I have victory in Christ Jesus. But that victory wants to be made manifest in your life. Sin hampers the ability of God to work in your life until you repent and surrender. So if you want to cooperate in God's triumph of his most sacred heart and the immaculate heart of Mary over this world, let me ask you, how's your heart doing? Have you gone to confession? As Catholics, we were never really taught how to repent, only how to go to confession. And I want to help you realize that if you look in the catechism, it's our repentance that leads us to the confessional. It doesn't replace the need for personal repentance. Right? So what you need to do is you need to carve out quiet time to do an examination of conscience and not just look at a list and say, Jesus, I did these things wrong, but to look at this list and say, oh, how this grieves my heart because it breaks my father's heart. Oh my God, I am heartily, not hardly, I am heartily sorry. I'm hardly sorry for having sinned. I mean, it was fun. What can you do? No, I am heartily sorry for having offended you because why? I dread the loss of heaven and the pains of hell. That's what we call servile fear. I'm afraid of being punished. What do we say to our little kids? You're not sorry you did it. You're only sorry you got caught, right? That's servile fear. I can't believe I did this. Now I can't go out on the weekend. I can't believe I did this. Now I can't party for all eternity, right? Because I dread the loss of heaven and the pains of hell, but most of all, because you are all good and deserving of all my love, true repentance comes from a heart of a son or daughter who sees what our sins do to our heavenly father. Not just because I dread the loss of heaven and the pains of hell, but most of all, most of all, because they offend you, my God, who are all good and deserving of all my love. That even though I'm a creature and unworthy of your glory, you called me into it and I still walked away. 
You sent your son into this world. You didn't have to, but your son manifested his, your love for us by his cross. That that cross is the biography of my sin. It's my price tag I wear about my neck. Do you know that God loves you? That his love is so real, he will even become your very food to get close to you, to change you, to make you a new creation. And that flesh that the word took came only from one beautiful source. A woman at enmity with the serpent. The woman who needed no seed of a man in order to bear offspring. The woman whose child will rule the nations. The Blessed Virgin Mary, brothers and sisters, is your key to the spiritual combat. Exorcists will tell you that in sites of Marian devotion, apparition sites, Lords, Fatima in particular, Knock in Ireland, the devil flees from those. People who are struggling with possession, who go through the Lord's baths, come out healed. Why? Because there was no disciple in the history of the world that was closer to Jesus than she. I mean, think about it. She was the first one to say yes. She gestated the Son of God in her womb for nine months. She was a living tabernacle. You ever think about that? Whenever I go and receive Holy Communion, that's me at my most Marian, right? I kneel down and I pray a Hail Mary. First thing I do after receiving communion. And I think about the fact that for nine months, she was alone with him. Her life and his life intermingled in the most intimate of ways. 30 years he lived with her in Nazareth. So don't kick your kids out of the house until they're at least 30, right? I mean, they got to get that sweet, sweet health insurance until they're 26. Roll it over, cobra that till they're 30. Okay. <laughs> Uh, or send him to like a <clears throat> convent. Um, 30 years with Christ in the peace of their Nazareth home. Finding of our Lord in the temple, the presentation, a sword too will pierce your heart, he says to the mother, not to Joseph. And there we find in the story in John's gospel, we find Mary hastening the first public miracle. He had a whole group of disciples that came with him from John's baptism into Cana at the wedding feast. Do whatever he tells you, she said to the servants. The woman speaks. The deed is done. My hour has not yet come. Always refers to the cross. And here is the woman, the mother, the intercessor, the queen mother sitting at the right hand of the Davidic king and she's interceding for her people and it happens and the, and the, the, the impurities that represent our sin is now made into the choicest wine that we can drink, the purity of Christian holiness. That's what happens when you say yes to her son and do whatever he tells you. You are not blessed because you hear the words of Christ. You are blessed to do the words of Christ. For if someone hears the words and does not do them, it's like a foolish man who built his house on sand. And when the rains fell, and they will fall. And when the winds beat against it, and they will beat against it. And when the floodwaters come up, and they will come up, your house will fall. If you're a hearer only, if you're just a student, he wants disciples who are followers, not fans, not the crowd. Jesus despised the crowd. In John 2, 23 to 25, he says, though uh, many people began to believe in him, but he did not believe himself to them because he knew what was in man and needed no one to offer testimony to man. The crowds in the gospels ain't the disciples. And so what happens? What unfolds? Mary there is there throughout his three years of preaching. She doesn't follow him everywhere, but she's known enough that when she shows up, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are here. They're all here. Like they recognize him. They're known. She's found along the way. She's there as the Stabat Mater, the new Eve at the foot of the cross, the tree of death, as he hangs on that tree and transforms it by his blood, by his yes, into the tree of life. 
Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden of Eden because lest they lay hold of the fruit of the tree of life and live forever in their state of iniquity. But now, brothers and sisters, Jesus embraced the tree of death and he transformed it back into the tree of life. And as he hung on the tree and became a curse, he became the source of blessing for us. And the Eucharist then becomes the fruit of the tree of life that you and I have but to grab hold in faith and confidence in the miracle that he wants to be your salvation. And all of that was possible because a 15-year-old girl said yes. Do you want to watch Satan fall like lightning? Imagine that arrogant spirit who thought he controlled the kingdoms, whose empire was of that of the whole air. And a 15-year-old girl took him out with her fiat. And there his body hung on the cross. I'm reminded of the scene in uh, The Passion of the Christ, my favorite scene, where she asked the beloved disciple to show her, to take her away from the crowds ahead to find Christ as he's going on the way. And there, just as they turn the corner, they see her, she sees her son fall. You remember that scene? And she runs out, and the scene juxtaposes between him as a little boy tripping and falling, and her running to her little boy. And her running to her son now, pressed down by the heaviness of that cross covered with our sins. And she goes to embrace him like she did when he was a little boy. But you remember what happened? He wouldn't let her. He said, See, see, mother, how I make all things new. And instead of indulging in one moment of repose by embracing her or receiving her embrace, you see his arms get tight around the cross and he stands and goes on the way. He despised the shame of the cross, but for the sake of the joy that lay before him, he endured it. Because though he was in heaven, he could not imagine heaven without you. Would that we would do the same. That we would put on the armor of God and resist the devil so that he would flee from us, so that we would acknowledge that temptation not sensation is what robs us of what Christ died and rose to give us. Our Lady, Queen of Victory, pray for us. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed are thou, Thanks for listening. This is Mike Gomer Gormley and Dave Van Vickle, hosts of Every Knee Shall Bow. For show notes and complete library of shows, go to ascensionpress.com slash every knee shall bow.